Welcome to the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast, where we discuss questions related to climate change and sustainable personal development with experts across different fields. I'm Dilara Salakhova. I am currently working at the European Central Bank on sustainable finance topics. And I would like to emphasize that this podcast is not related to my work at the ECB. Instead, it is a part of my desire and effort to raise awareness about the importance of individual actions to address current environmental issues and to bring desired changes into one's life. In today's episode, I'm happy to welcome Caroline Nyland. Caroline is the owner of Helios Infinitus, a company that provides various services in the field of renewable energies and energy access in Sub-Saharan Africa. Caroline has more than 25 years of experience in solar energy technologies and rural electrification. My warm welcome, Caroline, and I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. Thank you so much for this uh, opportunity in this interview. And uh, indeed, my business Helios Infinitas uh, is a, is a uh, consultancy bureau that I created uh, four years ago. Uh, with the aim to undertake some consultancy work, project management, lobby work, and uh, raise funds, international and national funds, to undertake rural electrification in uh, the world sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you for this opportunity. You are welcome. And I would like to start with the uh, recently published uh, report by Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Because in the view of this report, the renewable energy is really, the discussion on this renewable energy is extremely timely. And uh, this report suggests that if we want to limit global warming to, by, uh, to 1.5 degrees Celsius, it is essentially now or never. So global carbon emissions should peak in 2055, the latest, and then fall by almost 50% by 2030. To reach this objective, the report uh, proposes different uh, measures, but one of the main measures is really to reduce substantially, and I would even say drastically, the use of fossil fuels. So how optimistic are you about achieving these objectives? Yeah, that's a good question. I've not yet read that report, but in general, I think uh, we are still on a very slow pace of reaching this uh, objective. At this moment, I don't know how we will reach it because there are not concrete uh, actions, no concrete plans of actions, how to reduce them. At least, well, there are plans, but the way the, the investment is not always following and the urgency is still missing. And I think that's what we hear all around uh, the world, across the world, is the urgency for it. And I still miss this sense of urgency from the governments and from uh, big institutions and from the private sector, I must say. And even on micro level, you know, when I see around me in my own uh, small network, I don't see still urgency from uh, people to undertake, uh, to change their habits, because it also starts with our own habits. And just to say in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, I've been in Senegal the last, uh, I think, six months. And I've been there three times. Once I was also in the north of Senegal, in the very far remote areas of north Senegal towards Mauritania. And I've seen really climate change affecting the rural areas and the rural communities. Seasons changing, harvests are coming later or are not coming at all. I've seen people going in further poverty and suffering from the climate change impacts. And I think that was really the first time that I saw that and that, well, not I saw it, but at least that I recognized that, yeah, climate change is happening in, in the surroundings of the communities where I am traveling and where we are providing uh, energy access. And so, yeah, the urgency is, is, is really there. And I would like really the international community and all partners to move forward and to really take action and in an urgent way, because if not, uh, I'm sure we will not reach these objectives. 
Yeah, oh, this is true. Uh, I totally agree that the uh, emergencies is really missing. So essentially, uh, the same report uh, says that uh, current claims and pledges will uh, bring us to about like certainly above two uh, degrees of Celsius and more like uh, three degrees of Celsius temperature increase. So yeah. we really have to act. Yeah. And, and then actually, so when I'm thinking about the US and Europe uh, and other developed countries, these are those which are responsible for most of the emissions and not Africa. So Africa is rather the continent which will be uh, among the most affected by the climate change. And you already say uh, that you have started seeing uh, climate change affecting, affecting people's life and uh, bringing even more poverty. So what motivates you to work in Africa? So it's certainly not to reduce emissions, but something else. So how the renewable energy can help maybe fight the, the climate change in Africa? Yeah, well, you know, I lived in my, when I was a child for 16 years, we lived in Cameroon in Central Africa. At the same time, my father was working also, was one of the first pioneers in solar energy. And so uh, we went a lot in the, what we call the bush, uh, in, in far remote uh, areas. And I saw the need for energy access because many, many, many people did not have, and we are talking about the, the 70s and the 80s. And many people in Cameroon did not have access to energy. So I saw this pressing need to do something for it. At the same time, we were living in the in the capital city and there were a lot of shortage of electricity. We had a lot of blackouts in those years. And so when we went from Cameroon to France and later I went to study in the Netherlands, I decided it was a, a great conviction for me. It is to work, to do something, uh, yeah, to, to support these communities and to support the people in Africa to uh, get uh, energy access. And especially now, you know, we are in the 21st century. For me, it's not acceptable that more than 600 million people do not have access to energy. And I think even in Western Central Africa, only three countries are on track to give every one of their people access to electricity by 2030. And at a slow pace, 263 million people in the region will be still left with energy. So I think this data and this fact uh, already say the urgency or illustrate the urgency for doing uh, something. And so I started uh, more than 25 years, I think specifically 27 years ago, I started to work in the sector of uh, energy access and solar energy and specifically rural electrification. That means that I started working for companies that wanted to provide communities in rural areas access to energy. And so I've been always busy with setting up companies, energy companies, small energy companies or medium energy companies, West and East and Southern Africa. We are using mini grids, solar mini grids, uh, what we call solar plants with a distribution network and smaller systems, uh, what we call solar home systems on the roof of the households, of the homes. We're using these systems to provide uh, access to energy to uh, rural communities. People have to pay a small fee, an affordable fee. And this fees allows our companies to become financially sustainable. And that's the aim. It's not the free development, but people are paying for it. So there are commercial companies that we are setting up in, uh, in Africa. And our companies really become financially sustainable so that they can, in the long term, also provide, even for 20, 25 years, still provide energy access. At the beginning of 2000, and 2000, in the decade of 2010, we were almost always using subsidies, grants. But since uh, seven, eight years, we are also using a private capital debt to uh, undertake these activities in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. And how do you attract this uh, private funding? 
Because I imagine yeah. that uh, for people to pay like a very small fees, uh, you need to make like very, what's it, very long period loans. Yeah. So does also maybe the government support uh, uh, is needed there? Like, can you describe a little bit more uh, the funding part? Because I think it's really crucial to make this development forward. Yeah. Yeah. Private capital and, and debt can be attracted more easily, I must say, since uh, four, four, five, six uh, years. That was not the case before. Uh, like I said, it was we were using uh, grants from uh, the European Union, the World Bank, United Nations organizations, uh, national governments, even the Dutch government was uh, also providing grants. And at the same time, I, I, I was director of an organization in the Netherlands when I was setting up all these companies in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And we could also find some funding from uh, sponsorship from multinational corporations, but also uh, energy companies in the Netherlands. So there was always this mix of grants and sponsorship and uh, donations. But private capital is uh, started uh, since, well, according to my opinion, since really, really uh, functioning and, and uh, active involvement from private capital was really since, let's say, five, six, seven years. There are a lot of uh, venture capitalists, social responsible funds, impact funds, climate funds that interested in investing in this kind of activities. Why? Because you see that more and more of these companies are trying to be really financially sustainable and to reach profitability. We are still not yet there. Uh, there's still much to do to get these companies profitable, but at least it attracted the interest of all these kind of funds in the world. And that's a good thing because we cannot survive our companies only on the basis of grants. But you need always a portion of grant because, as you know, solar energy is still very expensive. We are talking about very substantial investments, especially the capital, the capex uh, investments. Mm -hmm. So we always say, well, that's my opinion. I always say we still need at least 30, 40. It depends if you are deploying mini grids in the field or you are deploying solar home system, the smaller systems. But for mini grids, I always say we need some grants. So I always search for a portion of uh, maximum 50% of grants. And then the remaining 50% is covered by a mix of equity and debt. That's mm -hmm. at least the balance that I'm now looking at uh, since some years and it's working. Just recently set up a company, an energy and distributed energy company in Zambia. And that's the way how I mix the, the I undertake the financial mix. And it works because from the moment, especially for mini grids, because it's still difficult to get them completely financially sustainable. So I try to at least have 40, 50 percent grant so that it minimizes also the risk that a private capital firms see when they invest in projects because they still see a lot of risk when investing in such uh, projects uh, in Africa. Yeah, well, I imagine the risk, uh, like social political risks, right? So, and grants, uh, they give uh, additional protection for investors. Yes, or indeed. Yeah, we are talking about, well, many kind of risk. Uh, you have political risk, like in Mali. Uh, we all know the coup d'etat. I think it was the... Uh, third coup d'etat that we had recently, then things are put on hold, my projects are put on hold, although you can operate there, but for setting up a new company, it's difficult. So we are waiting that situation restore, but that's a political risk. You have economic risk in, in countries where there's a, a huge devaluation of the currency. Mm -hmm. You have exchange risk. You have a lot of risk like crowd you know, it's not always easy to operate companies there, especially in those times when there was no mobile phone payment, when uh, your customers were paying cash, their monthly fee on a cash basis. We had in some companies some fraud. 
Then there's a government change, so regulation change. So there are many, many risks that you have to take into account. And we always try in our business plans when we set up a company and we always establish a document and we do an analysis of risk and how we can mitigate this risk. These are important, not only for us to operate our companies, but also for our funds to show them that what well, we are trying to control the risk and we have thought of all the risk that could eventually happen. And even environment like climate change risk is, is coming up. Right? So we also have to think of all this climate change risk that, like I said to you, what we see in Senegal, you know, when people, you, when your clients, which are households with low income, some of them only earned two or three dollars, uh, one or two or three dollars per day. Most of them are farmers. And when there's a big drought, there's no rains for a long time. No season, uh, the seasons patterns have changed. And when people cannot afford to pay their electricity fee, their monthly fee, then because of the fact that it didn't uh, have a successful harvest, mm -hmm. then you also have a great risk as a company because your yeah. clients cannot pay. So there are a lot of risks to take into account. And that's I think it's one of our biggest challenge in our business. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I'm still uh, struggling to understand, really speaking. So to install these solar panels and uh, all the infrastructure, it requires a huge investment. So it's your company who gets the funding from investors, right, who install the infrastructure. But then the payments are really, really small from the farmers because otherwise they cannot afford it. So I really wonder, like, how you uh, yeah how you make the really the ends uh, meet and for how long do you give these loans then to to the farmers so that they are affordable yeah we we don't give loans and we don't we get a loan from banks or from funds to buy the systems and to set up uh, new companies but for operational cost we indeed use the income from the clients to be financially sustainable From the client side, like you say, there are small fees. They are between five euros. Well, it's what you call small fees, but it's between five euros and 10 euros, sometimes 15 euros, depending on in which country you are. Some countries are more wealthy than other. But in this case, West Africa is the least one of the more poor countries in the world. So, but still, uh, you will be surprised what people can pay. You know, because they see the opportunities with electricity and, you know, electricity is not only for households. Uh, from the moment people see what they can do with electricity in a house, you know, just power some of the appliances. Mm -hmm. They uh, have directly this thinking of, okay, then I can also start a business. So you will yeah. see many people, many people, women, men starting a business next to their house uh, for charging phones. For being a mechanician uh, or starting a sewing uh, atelier or starting a cinema, a bar, a shop, whatever. So it gives them extra income. So it's not that people, I've been, uh, I've set up uh, seven companies in total since uh, the start of my career. And I've been always surprised how resilient people are if they have to pay if we provide good energy on a long-term basis if we really maintain the systems well if we repair the system as soon as they are broken because that's part of our business model mm -hmm. if we are doing a good job there the people will pay unless they are really in difficult financial situation. But most of them, they start a company and, and that allow them to have extra income. So that's important. Uh, some of our clients, they just get uh, from themselves, they, they go to a rural bank or a microfinance institution, although they have very high interest rates. But sometimes they also have their own internal financing structure within their own communities, like the Tontine. And the Tontine is a way to provide a credit, a credit loan to their peers and to their own people in the villages. And that allows them also to pay the fees. So they are really creative in getting the money. So we don't even provide that opportunity. Of course, if the clients come to us and they say we don't have the money, then we try to 
set up that relation between the banks, the rural banks or microcredit finance institutions and the clients. That's what we do, but we don't ensure or organize that aspect. So most of the clients that can afford it. And it's amazing what people, you know, when I have done a lot of studies in the villages, interviewing a lot of people, what they earn and what they pay for education, what they pay for their health, for food, for energy, well, all this kind of expenditures. And it's amazing to see what people spend and can spend. And as long as they really are connected to modern electric services, then when the consumers and the clients are happy, then they are eager to pay. Mm -hmm. Oh, so what you're saying is really... You just need to give the, this opportunity and then people find all the uh, energy, creativity and the ideas how to um, make money with it and how to pay back. So they really see this, uh, this opportunity and they, uh, they take it. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, do you see, uh, so actually you somehow already mentioned it, so, uh, but maybe you can have some concrete examples of how this really changes people's lives. Because I yeah. imagine like with the electricity and with the all electronic devices that they, they can charge uh, the kids, uh, they can learn uh, from MOOC, like from mass open uh, courses platforms. Uh, and uh, I think it's uh, like it's a huge opportunity. It's almost like a game changer. So maybe you have some yeah. concrete examples. Yeah. I think one of the greatest examples was during the COVID. You know, many of our children in Europe, they, they had to go home and to have their school and uh, have their classroom uh, behind uh, their virtual classroom to follow the lessons behind the computer. But that was not the case for many, 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 many millions of children in uh, Africa, especially in rural areas. And so a recent company added uh, this opportunity. So we bought a lot of these uh, uh, laptops and we provided the electricity in many of these villages, whereby uh, all these children could uh, follow their, their classroom or their lessons uh, behind the computers. And I think this, this is one of the, the greatest impact. But I think the greatest uh, impact is also, like I said, the greatest impact for me. And I saw it everywhere. So when this household have the opportunity to create uh, businesses and to set up small scale economic activities in their villages, and you see, especially women, you know, who thought, okay, if not everybody has energy access in this village, so how do they charge their mobile phone, the other, the remaining population in the village? They always have to, you know, people always have to go to another city to charge their phone. So it costs them someone to pay for it, to who will charge the phones in a, in a neighboring city. But you also have to pay transport costs. So it's always very expensive. So this woman, they thought, well, let us just put a small building and then a small system, solar home system. And with the small system, I can at least charge five or, or seven or 10 phones at the same time. And so she got clients who every hour, are, you know, or every day are coming to charge their phone. And, and that, you know, immediately increased their opportunity for increase of uh, income. And the same for, uh, I, I remember one day I was in Uganda, I came in this, in, in one of the villages, and I saw suddenly a lot of, well, I think two cinemas, sometimes they can always, they can also exaggerate, <laughs> but at least I saw two cinemas, three mechanicians, I think 10 shops, well, all of this uh, sudden Yes, successful increase of economic activities in the village. And you saw, an, uh, and that also impact the environment. And that's beautiful. It's because when a village has electricity, it attracts people from other villages where there's no energy access. And so you see that a kind of a scaling of activities happens in two, three years in that village. And it, it becomes sometimes even a trade center where people are dealing with each other, trading with each other, and it attracts a lot of people. And so that village also grows and grows in terms of population. And that's really beautiful to see. And I always say that 
Yeah, that electricity is one of the main drivers of economic development. Uh, we have seen it in Europe and in the Western world and in other parts of the world. And you see it also in, in, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And the fact that many young people are staying in the villages, whereby uh, years before they always went to the cities to find jobs there, yeah, to earn something. Young people think, well, if I have here electricity, why should I then go to the main cities uh, where there's no job, where there's uh, high unemployment? So these young people, they stay, they even, some of them, they even don't want to go to Europe because they say, well, yeah, I have opportunities here. That's what I've been looking for for many years. And so, uh, and I think that's a great drive for economic development of these rural areas. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it can also help a lot to adapt to the climate change, right? So it can not only reduce poverty and bring the economic development, but also help fighting all the negative consequences of the climate change. Yeah, well, we always, you know, when we set up all these uh, systems, these solar systems, whether we are talking about so, uh, solar plants or, uh, or smaller systems, we are saving CO2. That's one, because normally you would have all these uh, grids, uh, the main grids, which will develop from the, the, the capital cities to the main er the rural areas. And they are still doing it. In the main trading centers in, uh, in Africa, you will see that the main grid is still expanding. But in the more remote area, far from the main grid, there's no solution for the main grid. So you will see that the only opportunities is solar energy or sometimes wind energy or a mix of them. But in most of the cases, uh, solar energy is, is the main solution. So, yeah, we, we are, in our case, we are uh, fighting for CO2 reduction, of course. And, of course, we still have, I, I also, I'm also uh, transparent and, and realistic. We still have to think about what do we do with all this, uh, the recycling of these batteries, because we are st storing energy in the uh, batteries. Mm -hmm. So we are thinking of uh, how, what should we do with the end of the lifetime of all these systems? What do we do with all these solar panels, with these batteries? And we are str struggling with it, especially with the batteries. We have been trying to make deals with manufacturers of solar batteries. Uh, if they can recuperate all these batteries. And now we are talking about still about gel batteries, lead uh, acid batteries. And so we have trying to make some deals with manufacturers if they want to recuperate them and recycle them. But then you still have to uh, export them to Europe. So it's, it's not an easy process. It's, we still didn't find a good solution for it. So that's still something we are analyzing and trying to find the best solution. Of course, the best solution is to have recycling factories in, uh, in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, there are one or two or three of them, if I don't make a mistake, but still, there's still much to undertake because that's also environment, you know. Uh, the only thing what we do is when a battery is not functioning anymore, is we store them in our premises so that people do not take them and then broke them in, in many pieces and then try to sell parts of it. And then you see that the lead acid is pouring into the soil. That's not what we want. That's happening a lot, but that's really what we are trying to evolve. And the good thing is that government, national governments in Africa, before we set up a company, we have to undertake an environmental study and we have to illustrate how we are going to fight against environment pollution and environment issues and that's a good thing and we and they really uh, monitor us how we are doing every year how with the company we are undertaking this uh, environmental activities in the field but yeah, still much to do. But yeah, uh, I think we are with our activities, we are, we are really mitigating environmental uh, climate actions. And yeah, we are, but still much to do. And, yeah. and that's part of our policies and the regulations. Yeah, so still a challenging, uh, challenging task. Yes. Uh, but what I was thinking is actually uh, the energy can also provide uh, some cooling in the houses. 
and uh, also help with the irrigation. Uh, and these are essentially the adaptation measures uh, because uh, when the temperature rises, it will be even hotter in Africa and in some places uh, it may bring almost unlivable conditions. So, but the energy helps to mitigate in a way uh, some of these consequences. Yes, indeed. I've been in a situation where uh, there were temperatures of 45 degrees, 48 degrees. So cooling systems are really, really needed, not only in-house, eh, fans and, uh, and, and small maybe air conditioning systems, but at least fans are needed. But when talking about farmers, farmers will have their harvest and will have to sell them directly after harvesting their vegetables, for example, they have to sell it directly. If not, they lose their harvest. And so when they sell them directly, they don't get a good price. But when they have fridges uh, at their disposal or cold rooms, they can sell, they can store the harvest in the cold rooms and the fridges and then sell at any moment that they get better price, they can sell the harvest. So in that sense, I think even we are talking about households, but farmers are also an, an, a target group that is affected by climate change. And so uh, one of my uh, projects that I'm, I must say, even uh, my far, my, my, my main project I'm going to set up is to connect uh, 100,000 farmers with productive use appliances. I'm talking about uh, meals. I'm talking about uh, fridges, cold rooms, solar pump systems, irrigation systems, solar drives, all these appliances that will help farmers to increase productivity and to reduce the loss of the harvest. And that's really needed. And that will allow all these farmers to at least also increase their income. And so we are now thinking about, uh, and, and we know that cold rooms, we are talking about cold rooms for uh, 10 uh, cubic meter or 30 cubic meter of storage capacity. These cold rooms are not affordable for these people. So we are trying to see what kind of business model, income or economic model we can set up to uh, at least make these cold rooms at the, at the disposal of uh, farmers so that they can at least store their, their harvest. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you for this. And how reliable is the uh, solar energy? Like, is it the permanent? Are there possible uh, problems with it? Or in Africa, the sun is so hot and uh, permanent that uh, there, there are no real problems there? Well, we are talking about uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So the sun is there in, in most of the majority of the days it's there. So it's not only about uh, sunshine, even if there's cloud you can still have some capacity, but maybe less capacity at least, less capacity, but at least it's still running. I think the challenge with solar systems is uh, one of them is the maintenance. So in our business models, we are really taking care of the maintenance of the systems and ensuring that these systems works for a long time for the clients so that they don't have this burden of replacement also. So if, for example, every, it depends on the type of battery and how it is used and maintained, but the battery should be replaced every, say, um, seven to 12 years. It depends on the batteries. Huh? For smallest batteries, it's every five, six years for the best quality batteries. And the bigger ones don't need so much uh, maintenance. These batteries can uh, last for 12 years, uh, for example, for solar plants. But yeah, you are working in very harsh conditions. There are uh, high temperatures, a lot of dust, a lot of, you know, small insects uh, that can come into the batteries or can come into the, the panels. So you, you always have to maintain well. As long as, as a company, you ensure that the maintenance is provided and that you replace the systems, the components of the systems, then it can last forever. And so good customer care service is of great importance uh, of our activities. Do you hire local people to work on this? Yeah, there's, uh, there are all uh, local staff. What I did, at least in the past, it's all local staff. And once the new companies that I've set up now or are being set up are all equipped with uh, local staff. Yeah, and, 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 and the, the staff is there. Of course, it's, you have to train them. 
but more and more people in Africa are trained in solar energy. Many, many schools and universities and professional schools are also training young people in the field of solar energy or in general in the field of renewable energy. So you can find more and more people, easily more and more people in solar energy. Like really qualified staff. Qualified staff, of course, they need experience. And so sometimes we send our staff from Germany or from the Netherlands or from, from Europe or whatever to the countries to just strengthen their trainings and support them also in maintaining and operating the systems. Mm-hmm. In how many countries do you operate? Well, at this moment, we are, I'm operating, well, I, I'm working for different employers. For one employer, a German employer, we have set up a company in Zambia and probably set up now, well, we are in the due uh, process of setting up a company in Mali and maybe Senegal, Gambia. But I've been operating in the past in seven countries. Yeah, and now three new countries, uh, three new additional countries. Okay, so what I really like about the renewable energy is its democratic nature. So I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it, it's from Jeremy Rifkin who said that the, really the renewable energy is a very, it's the most democratic energy. So it may also change the way our society is structured. So moving from the uh, top down, because uh, fossil fuels require, so it's more like elite source of energy. It requires a lot of initial capital investments, uh, a lot of people, whereas uh, renewable energy, people can produce it uh, on their rooftops. And then it's more about uh, the collaboration. Yeah, like it it really may change uh, uh, the structure of our society. And I really like this idea. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, You know, it's all about centralized planning and decentralized. When we talk about renewable energy, in our case, at least, uh, we are talking about decentralized energy. And it's the community who decide if they want it and what type of systems they want. And, you know, we communicate a lot with the clients, even before setting up a company. We involve them in our activities and in our decisions. Because they decide what type of systems they want, you know, if they want milling systems or they want small systems for powering the houses or they want solar pumps, whatever. So indeed, it's more a democratic process in the villages, what we are doing. And we can't, you know, we have to do it together with them. You cannot say, okay, we have the systems, we bring them. Uh, no, because they won't pay for it or even the world development structure in the well, the, the world development uh, impact won't take place in the villages. So, yeah, it's a democratic uh, process. What I like most is that we have to work with a lot of partners. And only if you make it a success, then you can uh, realize your project. So somewhere we are obliged to work together with many partners to make it happen. So it's not a sole process. It's a process with many stakeholders. And every stakeholder brings in its own strength. You know, we are working, for example, with a lot of NGOs. For example, in Zambia, we are setting up a lot of activities to strengthen uh, gender, to involve more women in the energy uh, activities. And so we train them to become a technician. We train them to become a commercial agent or even to use, uh, to understand how, what what is a solar system? How does it work? We provide them access to finance. We cannot do that because we, we don't know these communities. We don't always understand the structure and the culture and, and how it works in these villages. So you are obliged to work with NGOs who are at the roots of these communities and working in the, in, in the basement of these communities. So yes, we work with a lot of NGOs. We work with the local authorities, the national authorities, governments, funders. You know, everyone is involved in this kind of project. For example, if as a company you cannot pay back your loan for some time, you have to go back to your fund and say, well, we have these issues. Can we have an extension in the payment of our loan? You know, and as soon as you involve this people and these stakeholders, 
you know, there's a better comprehension about the issues you are involved in. Everybody knows that it's not easy to set up these kind of activities in the rural areas in Africa. So as long as you can increase the comprehension of this type of projects, the more the stakeholders are inclined to think with you and to make it easier for you to succeed. Mm-hmm. To find creative solutions. Yeah. So- That's that's very beautiful. I have a question. So regarding this renewable energies for Europe. So do you think the Africa has the potential to export at some point the renewable energy to Europe? And maybe there are already some such projects exist. Yeah, I think there's a well. It's already happening. I think in. Uh, don't ask me all details now because I've not seen the recent uh, news about it, but uh, North Africa is. I think in the Sahara at the level of Morocco, they have some big uh, solar plants uh, fields, and these fields are already providing uh, access. Well, uh, uh, are providing or distributing energy to Europe. If I don't don't make a mistake, I think it's already happening. And uh, you know, I, in in my field of rural, we are still in a small field. So for my sector, we we cannot in our activities we we can't say we are going also to distribute this energy to Europe. We are not in this uh, sector. But I know in, in many parts of Africa they are thinking about it, and maybe there are already some opportunities or projects that are fields of solar energy that are already uh, distributing along Africa and uh, going to Europe. Not sure, but I would say that at this moment the energy is. Uh, Must much needed in Africa, so uh, maybe we should leave that energy first in Africa and provide um, the 620 million remaining people that have not access to energy. Please first let uh, these people have energy before we export that energy to Europe. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And now, so we don't have uh, much time left. So let me get back uh, to you. You mentioned the, actually at the beginning of our conversation that everybody uh, has to take uh, actions also at the personal level. And I am wondering if yourself, you have a sustainable lifestyle. Do you have your small habits, uh, sustainable habits uh, uh, regarding the waste reduction or reduction in the use of plastics or maybe some uh, food habits uh, Yeah. Yes, yes. I think every day I'm reading a lot about it, how I can improve the situation of our household here in the Netherlands. First of all, I think it starts with the cleaning products. You know, all the cleaning products are 100% recyclable and biological. I don't know how you say it. You can, it, it, it doesn't uh, Dilutable. environment. Huh? Dilutable, I guess. Huh? Yeah, okay. dilutable. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there, the, the cleaning products are all made from natural um, ingredients. That's one, and it's amazing that even with lemon, lemon, for example, you know, you can all. And I know there's a lot of acidity in lemon, so I know other people would say, yeah, but that's also. But at least I'm trying to always also look for the least harmful uh, resource. But yeah, there are a lot of uh, products uh, available in the market nowadays that uh, is is harming less the environment. So I have all these products in house. I don't use any chemical products in my house. I really hate all these products nowadays, uh, although sometimes you need them maybe. But that's one, recycling everything. Everything is wood in my house. Uh, there's no, well, maybe some plastics remaining, but uh, I'm trying to reduce all of them. I'm buying my products uh, when I go to the supermarket. We have a supermarket in uh, Amersfoort where there is um, the, the cereals, the rice, everything is not packed mm-hmm. in uh, in plastic, but packed in, in uh, paper bags or just you bring your own pots and then you can fill in your pots. So this way I'm also reducing my waste. I'm making my own, uh, you know, every vegetable that uh, I make my own soil fermentation uh, ah, products that I can uh, use in the garden or for my own plants. I don't have a car. 
sometimes when I really need a car, I take a car. So I try to share a car with someone. And if I and I'm trying to buy an electric car, but they're still expensive. So waiting for the best moment for it. But yeah, on the other side, the problem is you always have to find a good equilibrium. What I'm doing, for example, I'm I have to travel for my work to Africa. So yeah, we are talking about the kerosene. So at my home, I'm trying to really reduce my impact, but at the same time, I'm still not reducing impact because of my travels. So it's it's difficult, but I say if every one of us try at least, you know, to reduce the impact, uh, whether it is in house or outside, it, it will help. You know, it's changing our habits. We are changing our habits you know, it's it's even uh, using the heater with gas or uh, when do you use the gas? Do you put your heater all day on or half of the day? Yeah, so uh, and I'm, for example, what I'm now organizing every two, three months is a uh, and gathering with my friends and uh, so I don't buy new clothes I was always buying a lot of clothes for many years but since two years I'm really reducing it I'm just changing my clothes with other clothes with from friends and so you know we are uh, exchanging so that we don't need to buy new clothes so it's just it's small I know it's small people will say well it's small but still, if every person on this earth can change a little bit their habits, that will also help a lot. I have solar panels, of course. I have put a lot of clay on the walls of my uh, wall. Clay from Africa, from Mali. It's a clay that uh, allows you in the summer to have cold, uh, a little bit fresh. And in the winter, it uh, stops uh, cold from outside. So it regulates your temperature in-house. So these are the kind of, uh, you know, in, in the basement of my house, I have a lot of shelves just to stop the, the cold coming from the soil because we are in Netherlands, a lot of uh, water, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been doing everything in my house just with natural resources and natural material just to avoid CO2 increase. Well, I think this is a really beautiful example. I totally agree with you that if everybody just becomes uh, more conscious about their impact on the climate and changes uh, or start changing uh, slowly, step by step, uh, one habit after the other, it will uh, really make a big uh, difference. Because uh, what we need is uh, we need a cultural shift uh, in the way we treat uh, everything around us. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add, you know, what I did also in the COVID period, I discovered that many meetings can be done also virtually. You know, I remember when I had to deal with governments for concessions, for permits, for licenses, you know, before you operate an energy company, I always had to go there. Uh, well, that is what I thought. In, in most of the cases, it, it is. It I need to go there. But sometimes, you know, like Zambia, I for one year, I worked out all these uh, permits and concessions from distance from, you know, I had a lot of meetings with the government officials virtually with them. And so I could arrange everything without traveling. I could arrange all these uh, regulations issues uh, from distance. So this this made me think of, okay, that means that I can also reduce my travels to Africa. And that's what I'm doing. So before I went every one month or every two months to Africa. And well, recently I was traveling much because I had to recuperate some of my travels and from the last three years that I didn't travel for because of COVID. But now I'm only traveling when really, really needed. And uh, even trainings, I'm giving them from distance, as long as we ensure that the, the people, the participants in Africa have a good connection and have a good laptop or whatever, then you can do a lot through distance. And that uh, means that uh, you can also reduce your footprint regarding uh, traveling. And that's what I'm trying yeah, absolutely. And it made me think uh, about the saying, it, is, it seems impossible until it's done. So and exactly. I think COVID did uh, teach us uh, some yeah. very good lessons. Indeed. Yeah. 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 It was really, I think, a good uh, mind shift uh, for, for everybody. And so now the, the last question that I ask all my guests is what are your two most inspiring books? 
Well, that's a very difficult question because I read a lot and I have many, many books, but the ones that I recently read was the biography of uh, Mandela. Very inspiring. And I reread it and reread it. And uh, he has a lot of quotes that I like. At the same moment, the one that I'm reading now is The Power of Geography from uh, Tim Marshall. Very interesting book because, you know, I try to understand, for example, what is happening, uh, what are the geopolitics in the Sahel, uh, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, what is happening, why there is so many uh, complex uh, issues there. And I, I'm trying, I was always reading magazines about what's happening there, but I didn't really connect all these <laughs> these dots and so this book is marvelous because it it explains the geography of all this not only of the Sahel it's about Greece it's about Iran it's about many countries and it explains why there are so many difficult issues and why they are interrelated to each other and why and, and how the geography the geography plays a, an important role also in geopolitics and it's amazing. You know, I've been reading it uh, since one week and I, I can't stop reading it. It opens my eyes and my understanding of geopolitics in the world. Thank you very much. Uh, so I will add it to my uh, reading list. So let me ask if you have any other final remarks that you'd like to add and that we didn't cover. Yeah, well, I think we uh, covered everything. I just want to say that what drives me to do this kind of activities related to energy access in sub-Saharan Africa is the great social and economic inequality that is that you can see in this part of the world. And I always had the drive to change the world and to create a more equal environment for all and to reduce poverty and enhance the life of people. And uh, that drives me every day. And that's why uh, even despite all the challenges we are faced with uh, in our sector, it drives me every day, you know, to come out of my bed and to walk uh, long days to make our company succeed and, uh, and, and the business succeed. So, yeah, I decided to dedicate my life to it. And another one is that uh, I'm striving now to um, train also young people around me. A lot of young people are doing their internships within my organization. And yeah, I would like to pass on my knowledge and experience to a young generation so that I can, uh, because there's still much to do and the challenge, uh, the work is still there for many years. And so I hope that the young, young generation is uh, taking, will also take it over and yeah, will be enthusiastic uh, to, uh, to, to undertake these activities. So yeah, I, I just would like to call on, I don't know who's your listeners, but I hope that your audience, there are a lot of young people also who wants to be involved in this and they are invited to uh, call me and to see if uh, there's uh, internship uh, opportunities uh, within my organizations. Thank you very much for this. So uh, in the description, there will be links to all your contacts. And so indeed, all the interested people are welcome to, uh, to contact you directly. Thank you very yeah. much. Okay, thank you. so let's finish here. And thank you very much again for everything. I think it was really super interesting. I, I learned a lot. And uh, uh, so just to conclude, I think, well, Africa, Africa's population will double in the next 30 years. It has a huge potential. And moreover, people really need uh, this development. Uh, there is uh, huge poverty. This is the continent who suffers from uh, the emissions uh, emitted by others right, for their own development. Uh, and uh, the climate change will only worsen the situation with the poverty if we don't act. And so um, uh, I would really like to thank you for what you're doing. I think it's, it's amazing. And I wish you all the best in your project. And uh, I hope that more private funding and uh, other, like all different types of uh, sources of funding will come and your projects will prosper. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you.